to episode number five of the Woodpeckers Baseball Podcast, the official podcast of the Advanced A affiliate of the Houston Astros. I'm Matt Dean, broadcaster and communications coordinator for the Woodpeckers, uh, setting you up on this episode for the week of June the 7th through the 13th. And we do have some baseball news this week, and some of it even not on the labor negotiations front, although we will get uh, that bit of news out of the way as well. The Major League Baseball draft was underway, and at the draft, uh, I guess some encouraging signs, you could say, of a baseball season coming at some point this year. Uh, Rob Manfred, Commissioner of Baseball, said he was 100% sure that there would be baseball this year in an interview uh, with ESPN. We're one of the two places covering the draft this last week. At the very least, it looks like we would have a 48-game major league schedule if the two sides can't reach an agreement. Uh, the commissioner does have the autonomy to implement a shorter season that would be the 48-game slate uh, as long as the players receive their full prorated salaries that were already agreed on. 89 games is looking a little less likely at this point, that July 4th start date, uh, which would have been really fun having the national holiday essentially to kick off the baseball season that is looking increasingly less likely so you'd think optimistically somewhere between that 48 and 89 game range but probably not on the back end of it it was nice to have some real baseball analysis to watch even if it was just in theory with the draft the astros didn't get started in the draft till day two which occurred on thursday uh, they were without their first and second round picks this year did get a uh, additional second round pick so drafted at number 72 overall to start and they took a high school right-hander Alex Santos out of the Bronx Mount St. Michael High School. Uh, Baseball America tabbed him as the 45th best prospect in the draft so on the surface looks like a pretty good grab uh, by Houston with their their first pick 72 overall Alex Santos a high school right-hander. Then they went with Tyler Brown, former closer and national champion with the Vanderbilt Commodores. He was picked in the third round 101 overall because Zach Daniels, an outfielder in the fourth round out of the University of Tennessee. And then Shea Whitcomb, a shortstop from UC San Diego, picked in the fifth round at 160 overall. So that was uh, the draft perspective for the Astros. We saw 10 players with North Carolina connections go in the draft as well too, including four college picks in the first round, starting with Patrick Bailey, a catcher out of NC State who went 13th overall to the San Francisco Giants. Bryce Jarvis out of Duke, Jared Schuster from Wake Forest, Aaron Sabato out of the Tar Heels program, all first rounders in North Carolina. A couple of high school guys, Liam Norris from Green Hope High School in Cary uh, to the north of Fayetteville. He went to the Diamondbacks in the third round. West Columbus High School product to our south as well too. Uh, Jagger Haynes going uh, in the draft, uh, just the limited five rounds that it was reduced to this year. We've got two great guests for you on episode number five of the Woodpeckers Baseball Podcast. Our player guest for the week, Woodpeckers right-handed arm from last year, J.P. France, catching us up with his offseason to date at this point. And then a great conversation with the Astros radio voice, Robert Ford. So without further ado, we'll get into our pair of guests, J.P. France, right-handed pitcher for the Woodpeckers last season, and Robert Ford, Astros radio play-by-play voice on the Houston Astros radio network. All right, and I'm excited to welcome my next guest. He is a member of the Fayetteville Woodpeckers record-setting strikeout staff last season, originally a 14th-round draft choice at a Mississippi State in the 2018 amateur draft. He spent the entirety of his first full professional season with the Fayetteville Woodpeckers last season, appearing in 25 games, 20 as a starter, and was one of 15 Carolina League pitchers with at least 100 strikeouts on the season. Fanned over 23% of the batters that he faced. J.P. France, the former Mississippi State Bulldog and Woodpecker from last season, my guest. J.P., thanks for being here, and uh, it's good to have this conversation with you. Oh, thanks for the invite, man. Just to get us started, tell me about where you're staying and who you're with uh, as you've kind of been holding up ever since you basically 
all of a sudden had to up and leave and spring training was, was put on hold in the season. Where have you been? Right. Right. So I'm actually staying with my fiance and her parents and in Fayetteville. We've oh, very been here cool. For, uh, since quarantine and all that started. So just trying to, trying to not go crazy. And so in, in terms of just your routine and, and what you've been trying to do to keep up and, and stay ready, what kind of throwing regiment have you had going? Uh, obviously, as things have started to slowly open back up and, and return to normal at least a little bit, you know, have you had access to the a mound this whole time? What what kind of access to equipment and, and what type of training schedule have you had these last couple months? Uh, well, I actually I had to purchase a net and put it in the backyard, um, kind of just do a bunch of flat ground stuff. Uh, when this really first started, I was hoping to get – to the facility in Fayetteville, but they closed everything down. Um, it's actually still closed down. Get in there. One of the guys that is also in the or, uh, Astros organization, Brett Daniels, he actually was staying in Fayetteville too, lucky enough. So we were able to get together a little bit and start throwing at a park and all that. Not really have any access to a mound, but I mean, I'm just trying to work with what I got. <laughs> any thoughts at any point down the road coming over to Sager Stadium and, and getting a look at that or using that at all for your workout sometime in the future? Yeah, that's definitely the plan. I've been texting the equipment equipment manager, Magic, and just keeping in touch. When is that going to open up? When will I be able to use the facilities, uh, use the weight room, throw on the field just to kind of get that feel back? Because when spring training first started – I was ready to go. I had the best off season I thought that I've had in a while. I was supposed to throw a bullpen on Friday, and then we had an off day on Friday and got sent home on Saturday. So it's 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 been tough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and everybody's kind of had different setups and in different ways. They're just trying to stay in shape and and keep things ready for for whenever the call might come. Uh, you're originally from uh, Louisiana, the New Orleans area, ended up going uh, to Tulane where you spent your first three uh, seasons of college on the field, uh, transferred to Mississippi State for your graduate transfer senior year. Uh, just coming out of high school, you kind of stayed local, went to Tulane. What kind of other offers did you have at that point? And just when when did you start to have aspirations of playing professional baseball? When did you see that as, as becoming a reality in, in your career? Um, I mean, out of high school, I, I had the opportunity to go out of free agency. Not really. I mean, I, I don't regret any any of the decisions not going professionally because I definitely think going to college helped me mature. And back to where you were saying, staying locally, I've been I've always wanted to go to Tulane since I was five, six years old. <laughs> and that's really when I started noticing, hey, I'm actually kind of good at this pitching thing. <laughs> But no, I mean, it's, it's been a lot of hard work and being able to have those three successful seasons I had at Tulane led me to go play that one year at Mississippi State and the SEC and get that much more exposure. But what it also did was get my experience that much more. Being and pitching in front of 10, 12,000 people and pitching in Omaha in front of 20-something thousand people. I mean, it's just, you can't, you can't, replicate that. It's great. I mean, it's a really interesting career because, I mean, like you said, it was kind of your Tulane, the first place you went, was kind of your hometown team. You you kind of grew up rooting for them, thinking that you wanted to go there someday. And then you get this opportunity to go to the SEC. When, when did you start to consider uh, a transfer? Uh, you basically you finished your degree because you had a season that you sat out due to injury. So you had four years at Tulane to finish your degree, but one year of eligibility left. So how did you get in touch with the coaching staff at Mississippi State? And then just how much of it for you as a competitor was, like you said, the opportunity to maybe go to the College World Series, which incredibly you did in the one year you were there, and also just kind of to measure yourself against some of the best college talent in the country. The SEC is just such a great league. Right, no doubt. And it's actually a funny story how I got to go to Mississippi State. The recruiter that was at Tulane ended up being the recruiter at Mississippi State that year, Jake Gotro. And the head coach that was at Mississippi State that year, Andy Canizero, is actually 
Jake Gotro's roommate, they both played at Tulane, and I've known Canis, Andy Canizero since I was like 10 years old. So, I mean, that that's kind of how that tied in together, what really made me want to go to Mississippi State. And what you were saying competitively, I mean, it's it's a different animal. Like you said, it is – you are playing against some of the best college players in the country, and it's just if, if you're not on your A game, every time you go out there, you're going to get hit. <laughs> I talked to one of your, your teammates from last season uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Jeremy Pena, about playing in the Cape Cod League, and he, he was just saying how crazy it was where he just looked at all these guys, and it's like, wow, if I become a professional, I'm going to see these guys every week again. I started just clicking through some of the box scores. I don't know how many of these guys you specifically faced themselves, but I just looked at like lineups of games you were in, and it's you know so many guys that I've seen in a few years in minor league baseball. Trey Harris, uh, Gray Kessinger, who was a second-round pick of the Astros last year, Braden Shoemake. Chandler Taylor, a teammate of yours last year. Jonathan India was a first rounder. It's like every weekend you're seeing some kind of guy where it's like, does it? Do you get that sense? It's like, wow, these guys. If I make it to the pros, these are going to be the guys I face for years down the road. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's crazy running into all those people. Yeah, I didn't actually get to face CT because he actually, I think he tweaked like a muscle in his back or something the day before I got the pitch against Alabama and I just I, I've never faced him but I remember seeing his swings the day before and I'm like I'm like Jesus this guy takes some freaking hacks and his swing hasn't really changed since <laughs> playing with him <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about too uh, about your college world series experience like you said that was one of your aspirations of, of having the opportunity to be able to go to Omaha you get in in a game in, in the college world series you come in a 0-0 game in the eighth inning. I mean, you, you only got to pitch in one College World Series game, but about as big of a stage and as big of a moment as you could think, and you come out and throw a 1-2-3 inning. What do you remember about your individual game that you got in the College World Series and just that run by you guys as an unranked team going into the tournament outside the top 25, that run that, that you guys went on? Yeah, it was definitely crazy. Um, what – was blew my mind the most is that everybody all the fans that were in there when you were on that mound it, it's just it, it, it was dead quiet it, it was the craziest thing I've ever experienced yeah the only reason I really threw one inning my, my arm was tired I knew that I've already been drafted I didn't and I'm not gonna I'm, I'm gonna say this and it's gonna sound bad uh, I didn't want to injure it further fatigue and more to risk an injury to affect my college I mean my professional career but at the same time I wanted to go more innings but it was that fine line between okay I can do this much without getting hurt but I need to do this much so I can get my team to the next game <laughs> no I I hear you and and I think a lot of stuff has changed in college baseball too or a lot of times it was just you know, the expectation would you, you just go out there until the tank is empty to a way that might negatively impact you. And, and I think, you know, as things have moved forward, colleges wanting to get the best recruits and the best players, part of the pitch, right, is we want what's best for the team, but also what's going to be best for your career moving forward. So I feel like a lot has changed in, in the mindset of college coaches now in that regard. And that's what's tough with college I mean college coaches they are they're paid to win games so they're gonna do whatever it whatever they have to do to win a game but at the same time like you said it's that fine balance between hey we know we can put this kid in and we know he'll get us out but at the same time hey how much is he thrown lately yeah absolutely one of the other fun things that I just had. I kind of vaguely remember watching some of those College World Series games that year. Uh, I forgot that Mississippi State was the rally banana team. Have you ever gotten into a slump at, in pro ball where you've you know went out and bought a bunch of bananas maybe to try to, to shake out of it? Do you still go back to the rally banana as, as a way to, to, to bust a slump? I do not go back to the rally banana. Um, <laughs> uh, but I did have this stretch last year where it probably wasn't the best superstition was before every outing I would eat a pack of Sour Patch Kids and I kind of weaned off of that because of strength and conditioning coach 
coach saw that I had a big old box of Sour Patch Kids, and he knew I was trying to get my body weight down a little bit, and that wasn't helping the cause. So, <laughs> yeah, you you got to get some healthier, maybe like some almonds or something for to be the slump buster. You just got to tie it to something better than that, make everybody happy, right? <laughs> So I think, too, it's so crazy. I mean, you mentioned it. When you're in the College World Series, a lot of times a lot of the players are thinking about the next step, knowing that they're going to go pro. When you pitched in that game, you'd already been drafted and and were thinking about the the possibilities of the future. Uh, What had you kind of heard about the minor leagues going into it? I mean, not just the talent, obviously, that you'd be facing. I think you probably felt like you had a decent sense of that being in the SEC, but the bus rides, the minor league lifestyle, what kind of stuff had you heard and, and how did how did the minor leagues so far your match up your experience with what you'd heard about it? The the best way I can put it is what I've heard and experienced is it's a grind. <laughs> and the the one series that I can basically that sums it up was the Delaware Blue Rocks to the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. We played a game in Delaware, 7 o'clock game, finished around 11, bus left at 12, seven and a half, eight-hour bus ride to Myrtle Beach. So we're getting there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Bus driver gets confused. We go around Myrtle Beach for another 15 minutes trying to find this hotel. So we're back. We get in the room at like 8.30. And we got a game at seven o'clock that day. <laughs> that one probably sums it up the best for me. <laughs> I've been there. And and then too, another unique aspect of pro ball, obviously the the lifestyle, the long bus rides, but just a ton of of access to so many tools for for getting better, learning about yourself as a player, especially being part of the Astros organization. What have you? learned about yourself maybe your pitches or your style uh, of something from the Astros that that makes you unique or that stands out and then what have you maybe learned so far as a pro uh, on maximizing that to make it even better right and all the the technology that we use definitely helps a lot what I've found though is there's that fine line between okay we can use this technology to get better but then on the other end is okay what's too much technology that gets in the way instead of just going out there and playing ball and stop, and, and stop thinking. And that's what was really affecting me last year was that I was just thinking too much. I'm like, okay, how's this pitch going to look on track, man? How's this pitch going to look on track, man? And I'm thinking about this in the middle of the game instead of thinking, dude, just throw the freaking ball and get this guy out. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's it's definitely – helped a ton but at the same time you got to do what what you've done your whole life to, that's gotten you drafted that has made you that successful pitcher while tweaking some things along the way midseason absolutely and I, I've heard from a lot of players that that I've talked to the the coaches they like the the instructions that they get and the mentality that that they try to internalize is right so off the field or before the game maybe you're working on tweaking something with your delivery with a pitch but when it comes you know 705 or first pitch it's kind of just go out there and compete and and a lot of people that talk with a lot of coaches they like you know eventually that that training that things you're working on before the game are going to just become internalized and be natural but until then you know at seven o'clock at first pitch time it's just a matter of going out and competing right because i mean for most of us i'm 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 going to go ahead and assume that we've all started pitching at like eight, nine years old. So it's, it's really hard to say, okay, hey, do this, this outing where you've been pitching a certain way from nine to 21, 22 years old, and all of a sudden you're going to try and break that. It's not going to happen. So by you thinking, okay, hey, I have to do this. This is what I've been working on all week that's just going to hurt you in the long run. Like you said, work on those little pieces at a time, but when game time hits, do what you know how to do. And then, okay, your outing's over. What do I need to fix and all that? Okay, let's work on this again this week. And then eventually it's going to roll over into your mechanics and pitching. 
when when you were struggling at times last year and, and maybe overthinking it a little bit, what do you feel like you were getting away from? Just attack the hitters, not instead of instead of going out there and saying, "Hey, you you can't hit me. This is coming. I can tell you this is coming, and you're not going to hit me." I was more along the lines of okay, he called this pitch. I need this shape on this pitch to do this. I got to start it here for it to do here. It's it just about all that stuff was going on in my head instead of just throw. Good stuff. And we talked about the, the minor league lifestyle a little bit and some of the bus rides. I want, I want to get back to that to a degree. As a senior signing, you know, you're kind of a, a mid-round draft choice a little bit tighter of a budget. What do you have any like pro tips on, you know, cheap meals, uh, e- balling on a budget living, like any, any tips or anything that you've learned on the minor league trail about, about keeping the finances tight. A lot of peanut butter jelly sandwiches. I know you probably have heard that a lot. That's, that's basically everybody's go-to is a peanut butter jelly sandwich. It's easy. You get your protein, you get your carbs that you need. But I mean, yeah, really that's, it, it, it's hard because you're on these seven, eight hour bus rides. And if you don't plan ahead and pack something, you just, you're in trouble. <laughs> and then it's a gas station stop. And then you got to figure out, okay, what can I get for the cheapest price? But it's also not terrible. It's tough. Last year was, was a pretty special season for the woodpeckers. You were there for, for pretty much the whole ride. Uh, the staff set the Carolina League record for strikeouts. Uh, you added 100 of the team's record-setting total on your own. How fun? How much fun is that to just be on a staff that's just punching guys out left and right? How does that help encourage you as a competitor when you just you know you're coming in in relief or starting a game or the night before you know a guy fanned 12 guys in six innings? Like what what is that like just to be around where the the bar is just so high for strikeouts for anybody else on the staff. It's awesome. Knowing that we have the capability to do that is unbelievable. And actually the season before when I finished in low A at Quad Cities, they actually broke the Quad City strikeout record, uh, the Midwest League strikeout record. And I, I want to say the minor league strikeout record too. Yeah, I, I should have ch- looked that up. It, it was I think that was 2018. It was either that or the year before. Quad Cities has the minor league baseball record for strikeouts. Right. And I was also on that team too. So it's 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 crazy to uh, to be a part of that. And a great playoff run too. Came up a little bit short, but what do you remember about just the atmosphere in Fayetteville and and having the opportunity to have a postseason run, even if it's just in the Carolina League? It's, uh, I mean, going into postseason is always a blast. Um, when we first got into postseason, it was a little bit of a, a drag for me because it was my first postseason and I was just exhausted. <laughs> it was a hunt. I think it ended up being like 180 games or something like that, which, uh, I mean, it's just, it was just exhausting. But at the same time, even though you were tired, maybe you felt like, man, I just kind of want this to end because I, I'm tired at the same time that inner competitor is just, let's keep going. Let's keep winning. We've already made it to the postseason. Let's just keep winning games and get to the end. Why not? <laughs> You're already there. So you might as well get a ring. Not quite, right. but you guys, you guys right. had a fun season regardless. No doubt. No doubt. It was, it was definitely a fun season of, to remember a good first season. All right, again, our guest on the Woodpeckers Baseball Podcast, right-handed pitcher for the Fayetteville Woodpeckers last season, J.P. France. J.P., stay healthy, stay uh, stay in shape, and uh, we hope to see you on the field sooner rather than later. Sounds good. Thank you, Matt. I'm excited to welcome my next guest. He is entering his eighth season as the radio play-by-play voice for the Houston Astros. Prior to that, Spent several seasons as the Royals pregame host in the Kansas City Radio Network. Originally a native of the Bronx, Robert Ford, voice of the Houston Astros, uh, my guest on the Woodpeckers Baseball Podcast. Rob, thanks for being here, and hope you're doing well, and appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. No problem, Matt. Thanks for having me. To get started, I've been talking to a few players, some staff from around the Houston farm system, catch us up on kind of how your schedule's been ever since you went to spring training 
did a few games, kind of were getting ready for the season to start. How have you been occupying your time since and staying sane? I mean, what schedule, right? Uh, there really hasn't been one. It's amazing to me when I think back to how quickly everything happened. Because, you know, you think back to the beginning of March, down in West Palm Beach, doing Astro Spring training games. And at that point, you started hearing some things about this coronavirus and how it could be a threat in the U.S. But, you know, for the most part, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't front of mind stuff. And then you get a little further in the March, things start closing down. Seattle starts talking about, you know, they, they limit gatherings uh, to fewer than 100 people. And that's a city that hosts a major league team. So then it's like, okay, now this is, this is starting to become more real. And I remember on March 11th, did a spring training game that day. And then that night, we had our Astroline show that we do, our weekly show, hot stove show. And during spring training, we do it at a, uh, a bar restaurant in downtown West Palm Beach. And so I remember, you know, doing the show. And um, after the show, a bunch of uh, Astros coworkers were there and front office staff. And we were all just kind of hanging out at the bar. And there's a sports bar, so there are TVs everywhere. And that was when the news came out, not too long after the show ended, was when the news came out about Rudy Gobert testing positive for COVID-19. And I remember all of us were sitting there just kind of wondering, wow, what's next? You know, what's going to happen? This is, this is, you know, now it's starting to hit closer to home. And then the NBA canceled their season that night. And so did the NHL. And it was like, okay, so Major League Baseball can't be too far behind. The next day, March 12th, was an off day for the Astros in spring training. So I remember I, I already had planned to, to run some errands and, and do a, a few things. And uh, I remember that afternoon was when it came out that Major League Baseball was suspending spring training. And um, before I knew it, that night or late that afternoon, I was on the phone with someone in the Astros front office to book a flight back to Houston. And on May 13th, uh, the night of May 13th, I was back in Houston. So you think about the night of May 11th, I was prepared, you know, all right, got an off day tomorrow, got a bunch of spring training games coming up. And 48 hours later, I'm back in Houston. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's how quickly it happened. And it really is amazing to, to think that things changed as quickly as they did. But it all started with, obviously, Rudy Gobert, the Utah Jazz, testing positive for COVID-19. At least that's when it started in the sports world. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of similar story that the other guests that had on this week, a minor league pitcher, J.P. France, he was going to throw a bullpen the next day. Like he was talking about just sitting around on his off day. And then all of a sudden, all those plans are gone. He's back home basically a day later. So pretty wild. Uh, I'm interested too. Now, I mean, everybody's just kind of in a similar boat, sitting at home, waiting for news to come through about about a potential return for baseball. How do you kind of follow the news? And like, does your confidence ebb and flow like do you feel like you're more of a fan just kind of sitting there in the stands I think I think so often as like a broadcaster you get used to I know you had a blast your first year with the Astros even though they lost 100 games like you're you're not as as tuned into like the ebb and flow of the emotions of the wins and the losses now you're just desperate for baseball to come back do you feel like you're kind of a little bit more of just an observer, uh, more of a fan, just waiting for something to be put together for baseball to come back. And it was 111 losses in 2013. I want credit for every single one of those, <laughs> by the way. Uh, but, but yeah, you're right. You, you, we, you are more like a fan right now because we just have no control over what's going to happen. And um, obviously we, we hear some things. I think sometimes, and this isn't just true now, I think this is true even during the season. I think sometimes fans assume broadcasters know more than they do. Um, and we do have obviously intimate knowledge of certain things that the average fan wouldn't, but there's so much that we just don't know and just aren't privy to and probably shouldn't be privy to. And I think you think about what's going on with, with everything, with the negotiations for returning to play and all that, obviously that's between the union and the owners. Uh, it does affect us clearly, but that's not something that, you know, we're not sitting at the bargaining table. We're not getting regular updates other than what's being reported on the internet. I mean, I, you know, read Jeff Passan and Ken Rosenthal and, you know, Bob, Bob Nightingale and many of the other great uh, sports writers who have broken a lot of the, the, the various uh, news items that have come out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of waiting. I'd imagine that 
uh, if and when a decision is made as to a plan to return to play that, you know, I would get more information. And, uh, but even then, I mean, it's just so fluid, I think, because, uh, you know, we could be sitting here right now thinking one thing is going to happen. Uh, and then, you know, a week from now, it could be something completely different. And then obviously with coronavirus, it's so unpredictable what's going to happen with that. And that affects things as well. Uh, so I, I kind of accepted a while ago, like I remember getting back home to Houston uh, after spring training was suspended. And, you know, after I realized, okay, this is, this is going to be more than just a few weeks. I kind of ad adapted a mindset of, adopted a mindset of, I don't know how long, I know this is going to be a while and I don't know how long a while is going to be. Uh, but I'm just going to kind of wait around and uh, hope for the best and hope that I get to call some baseball games this year and that people get to watch and listen to baseball games. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's, it's just so hard to know at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are a few things that, that seem to become a little more clear about some of the rule changes that are going to happen for this year when, when it returns, however many games it is, all the stuff you've been tapped into on just rule changes, things being thrown around, there's going to be probably expanded rosters, some kind of minor league taxi squad of guys who are kind of ready to go if their call-ups need to happen, fill in for injuries. There's going to be a universal DH in both leagues. Of all those kind of different things you've heard about how the game is going to look that's different this year, what do you think is going to make the biggest impact? And then how just open to you are you to experimenting this year? It's just going to be a strange season regardless. So how open are you to just messing with the rules and seeing what works? It's going to be a strange season. And I mean, all the things you mentioned, those are all things that have been talked about, but we really don't know how many of those things are going to be changed, how many are not. I'm just kind of looking at it as, you know, it'll still be baseball. It's still my job to convey what's going on to, to the listeners. And I'm, all, you know, I'm always going to try and do that the best I can. And, you know, you think about the potential playoff changes, for instance, obviously that affects how you look at the season and not just the length, but also you know, third, fourth place team all of a sudden, you know, could be leading for a, a playoff spot potentially. So, you know, those are all things that are going to be different. And I, you know, I think you can't be successful in this business if you're not willing to adapt and change. I think if you're just sitting there all the time thinking, you know, this is the way baseball should be and, you know, and, and always complaining or lamenting the good old days, I just don't think that you're going to last very long in this game. I mean, you just think about, you know, the way analytics have changed things. If, you know, at this point, I think every broadcaster kind of knows some handle it better than others, but I think we all know, Hey, this is here to stay. This is part of the game. And, you know, we got to learn some of these things and learn what war is and, you know, things like that uh, and understand some of these new metrics that are out there because that's just part of the game now. And it's, something that our fans expect us to have at least a basic understanding of, even if we don't always talk about it on the air. Uh, so I think I look at potential rule changes and potential changes to the season the same way. Uh, Going to roll with it and um, try to explain it and talk about what it means best I can to, uh, to, to the people who are listening. Great. And a few things I wanted to ask you too, while we had you as a guest a little bit about your background. You grew up in the Bronx before you went to Syracuse and rolled that into a career in the minor leagues and eventually with the majors. Uh, just for you growing up, what were some of your early memories of specifically baseball? And then when did that kind of come into your mind as the thing that you wanted to focus on and, and pursue a career in? Well, I, I knew from a very early age that baseball was my favorite sport, and I couldn't even tell you why. It just always appealed to me more than other sports, even before I really started to understand baseball or or, or any other sport. Baseball was always number one for me. And I, it was always a sport I just, I, I always gravitated more to. I got to go to, I, you know, I grew up a Mets fan, even though I grew up in the Bronx, and I got to go to my first Mets game when I was five years old because um, I agreed to stop sucking my thumb. And that was something my dad had been trying to get me to do for a long time. And I was, I told my dad I wanted to go to a Mets game to see Daryl Strawberry play. You know, he was one of the stars on, on those Mets teams back then. And uh, my dad said, well, Dow Strawberry will not play if he looks in the stands and sees you're sucking your thumb. And so <laughs> I was like, okay. And so I, I quit cold turkey. And uh, April 1985, uh, go to my first Mets game. It was calendar day against the Cincinnati Reds. And 
it was, I believe it was 1-1 going into the bottom of the ninth. John Franco was the Reds' closer at the time, who later became the Mets' longtime closer. But John Franco was the Mets was the Reds' closer at the time, left-hander, uh, facing left-handed hitting Dahl Strawberry. Dahl Strawberry took him deep for a walk-off homer to win the game. And after that, I was in. I was a Mets fan. I was a Dahl Strawberry fan. Dahl Strawberry still my all-time favorite player. It still took me a little while longer to get to the point where I was following the game every day and and really paying a, a lot closer attention. That that started to happen more when I was when I was about nine or ten years old. But uh, at that point, you know, as a or I shouldn't say at that point, but as a youngster, I I knew that baseball was something that interested me. And you know, for a long time, I wanted to be a major league baseball player like a lot of kids. And then eventually realized that wasn't going to happen. But I knew I wanted to be involved in sports, specifically baseball, any way I could. One thing, too, you had a few different minor league gigs before you landed the pre-postgame show with the Royals. Uh, you were in Binghamton for quite a while in A. One of the things that's kind of come out in the news during this time is is the potential for the minor leagues to, to shrink and cut out a few of the teams out of the system, 40-plus. We don't know what cities and markets those are going to be in yet, but Binghamton was one one of the ones on that initial list of 40 teams uh, last fall, what kind of memories do you have about that community? They have a pretty nice tradition of minor league baseball there, and and what's kind of your reaction to to seeing them on a list at some point with that thing being in flux still, and what teams may or may not be be lost. You know, um, you know Binghamton was such a big part of my life and such a, a special time in my life. I think, uh, you know, I'd done three years of baseball play by play when I, when Binghamton hired me. And I, you know, my first year was in a short season league in Yakima, Washington, Northwest League, and then two years in independent ball in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And it was almost like this idea that, uh, you know, once you get to double A or triple A as a broadcaster, you know, it's almost like you, you've kind of arrived. Like, it's like, it's almost like being a player or it felt like at the time, like, okay, you're, you're only a step or two away from the major leagues potentially. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how true that is anymore. Uh, but that's certainly how I felt at the time. And, you know, and I was excited growing up a Mets fan. They're a Mets affiliate. Uh, so that was pretty cool. You know, just, just kind of a, a nice, uh, a, a nice uh, addition, you know, just a nice added bonus to, to getting the job there. Um, and it was only, you know, three or four hours from New York City where I grew up. Uh, and so that was, that was pretty neat. Uh, and, um, you know, it's where I met my, my uh, ex-wife. That's where my daughter was born. So there, there, there are a lot of connections for me to Binghamton, and there's still quite a few people that I know in Binghamton and who were in Binghamton when I was there and are no longer there who I still keep in touch with. So it, it's a very, very special place to me. I've been back, I guess, one time since I left, um, that I left for good. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's always, it would always have a special place in my heart. Uh, they were always kind of facing an uphill battle their best attendance was 1992, which was their first year as a franchise. And that, they won the Eastern League that year. And they've won the Eastern League a couple of times since then. Not when I was there, but uh, they didn't make the playoffs when I was there. But um, <laughs> they have won the Eastern League title a couple of times since their first season. But that first year is their best attendance. And it's one of the smaller markets in the Eastern League. Uh, it just, it, it does make things tough. They've been fortunate. When I was there, they had local ownership that really try to invest in the ballpark and improve things. And I know the owner that's there now, he's tried to do some similar things to keep the Mets affiliation and, 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 and keep that going. But it's, it's, it's difficult. They're facing an uphill battle and they have been for a long time. Uh, I hope that they find a way to keep double uh, a baseball in, in Binghamton, New York. I understand that that may not happen and it'll be a sad day if, and when that does happen, because uh, it's a it's a it's a great market. There are a lot of really good fans. Maybe not as many fans as some other places, but people really do care about the Binghamton now Rumble Ponies. They were the Binghamton Mets when I was there, but people really do care about that team. They really do take a lot of pride in it and pride in the the major leaguers who have come from there, and not just the players. Uh, myself and Don Orsillo, who does San Diego Padres TV, we both were Binghamton broadcasters who went to the big leagues. Don was before me in Binghamton. He was there in the mid nineties. And if you want to go back further, uh, the Binghamton triplets, which uh, they were a Yankees affiliate for a long time into the late sixties, Thurman Munson 
his uh, the year before he became rookie of the year in the American League in 1969, played for the Binghamton Triplets. And one of the Binghamton Triplets broadcasters over those years was Pete Van Weeren, who has since passed away and did Atlanta Braves games on radio and TV on TBS for so many years. So yeah, Binghamton, New York has produced three future uh, big league broadcasters in addition to all the players that have come through Binghamton, New York over the years and made it to the big leagues. That's really cool. And it, it's always so neat too when you have a team with a affiliation tie in one place for so long and, and there's so much Mets history tied up there especially too. So it was great to be in double A for your career. Uh, you got to see a lot of guys getting close to the majors. It's fun when you get up higher, and especially in a market like that, you're close to New York. There's people that care about the prospects that are maybe going to be met someday. When you were doing call-in for the Royals, like that's your really handling with the diehards. Like you're doing the post game, people are calling into the show. Do you have any like call-in stories about really passionate Royals fans calling in, or anything that really sticks with you that stood out? Well, if you were calling into Kansas City Royals post-game shows on 610 Sports Radio in Kansas City between 2009 and 2012, you really were a diehard because the Royals weren't very good. They hadn't been good for 30 years, more or less. And there was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of dissatisfaction. And when I was there was when a lot of the prospects that the Royals have been cultivating came to the big leagues that wound up being part of the teams that went to back-to-back World Series in 14 and 15 and won it all in 15. Saw Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, Salvador Perez, Danny Duffy, uh, all those guys I saw come up to the big leagues. I was there when Alex Gordon made the transition from third base to left field and, and, and kind of re-energized his career. I mean, just, just so many things happened during that time that laid the foundation for the good teams that were to come. But at the time, it was really hard for fans to see that because – They were just used to the Royals just, you know, not being able to get out of their own way. And for the most part, they hadn't been. Um, But I think it helped me that I had been in the minor leagues for a number of years before that, seven years uh, in the minor leagues. And I had an understanding of prospects. I had an understanding of scouting and an understanding of how these processes work. And so I felt at the time when some of these guys started coming up, like, hey, they, they're, they're building something here. I mean, it may not, we, who knows where it's going to go, but they're not, not going to be a terrible ball club for another 30 years. Like, I knew that. But it's hard to convince people of that when that's all they've seen. There was definitely a knowledge. It's a, the, the Kansas City baseball fans are really smart. There was definitely an understanding of the game. And I remember my first year in 2009, that was the year Zach Greinke won the Cy Young. And on the day, and he got up to this ridiculous start. He didn't allow a run in four straight starts or something like that. And, you know, you get to May and his ERA is below one. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And um, fans started showing up for his games. There would be an attendance spike when he started at Kauffman Stadium compared to what the attendance would be for, for other games. So there was always a passionate fan there. They were just frustrated because of how bad the team had been. But when there was a glimmer of hope, when they thought, that there was a shot to see something great like there was with Granke in 2009. The fans responded to that. Uh, I remember 2000, this would have been 2011, uh, the Royals did like their best walk-up sales in something like 10 years the day Eric Hosmer came up and made his big league debut. It was, uh, it was in early May of 2011, and it was like the first really nice day in Kansas City. So that helped. But, I mean, it was also like these people were responding. We've been hearing about this guy, his first-round pick, You know, we've been waiting to see some of these prospects come up, and now one of them is here, and people responded to that. Uh, I don't think that happens in every market. As a matter of fact, I know it doesn't happen in every market. So, you know, what always amuses me about post-game call-in shows is the fact that you can listen to a post-game call-in show anywhere, any sport, any team, any market. Team can be great. They can be terrible. And I feel like every post-game call-in show is more or less the same. And that's no knock on anyone or anything like that. But when you think about the types of people who call in, there are the people who call in, they're, you know, they want to tell you how long they've been a Royals fan and how much they know about the game. And I've been a Royals fan for 35 years, and this is the worst baseball I've ever seen. I have to have been a Royals fan for 35 years to know that the 
2009, 2010 Royals were terrible. Like I didn't, you know, you don't, you don't really, that's not something you really need. Or someone will tell you, like, say, I remember one night there was a, a third base coach that the Royals had that a lot of the fans were not happy with, and, you know, and when a team's struggling to score runs, every guy who gets thrown out at the plate, I mean, it just magnifies it that much more. Uh, and <laughs> somebody's calling in, you know, complaining about the third base coach and, talking about how they coach third base and for their son's little league team. So they know a thing or two. No, you don't know anything <laughs> about coaching third base in the major leagues. I mean, you, you know, the you know, the signals, they're, they're kind of the same with the windmill and the stop sign and all that. But yeah, just because you've coached third base in little league does not really give you much insight into coaching third base in a major league game. Uh, so, you know, stuff like that always would amuse me, but it, it was fun. And obviously you have your regular callers, you know, you, you always have your adventures. You have the people who curse and then you got to immediately dump them. You have the people who have weird stories like the girl who uh, called in one time. She had come to the game and she was shown on the TV broadcast. I saw her uh, on, on camera on the TV feed. Uh, she came to the game in her prom dress, high school senior, came to the game in her prom dress. She winds up calling into my post-game show and <laughs> says, yeah, I, I forget her name, but she's like, yeah, I was here, decided to come to the Royals game rather than go to my prom. And so, of course, it's like, well, why would you do that? And so then she reveals that her boyfriend was 25 and they weren't allowing anyone to bring anyone to the prom who was older than like 21 or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then she's talking, so I'm like, oh, so you, you know, you guys had a good time and she's telling me about the game and everything. And then, uh, I'm like, so what are you, so what are you doing now? Like, what's the after party? She's like, oh, a bunch of us are going to go to Sonic. I mean, it was like the most bizarre <laughs> phone call I've ever, like, it, I, I don't even think we talked about baseball. It was just like, I don't even think she had a question. It was just like, Hey, yeah, I was here and it was cool. And it was better than my high school prom because my boyfriend's 25 and couldn't go to the, and, you know, I felt like for a moment, like I was like going to turn into Dr. Phil, like you're 18. Why do you have a 25 year old boyfriend? You know, but I, I stayed away from that line <laughs> of questioning because I felt like that would, that would lead to some, some things I didn't want to know about. I thought you said every call in show was the same. <laughs> I've never heard one like that. <laughs> well, every call in show has its share of crazy calls or weird calls. Maybe not sure. quite like the one like that one, but there's, there's something, something similar. Sure. And you didn't quite get to see the, the peak of the Kansas City Royals, you come in for that last really lean year with the Astros. But, I mean, Jose Altuve was in his second season when, when you got there, second full season. You basically got to see a lot of the the core now of the, of the Astros come up through their time. Uh, I, I always love, you know, introducing myself to players when they first show up to a new place when they're called up. What kind of call-up story or first encounter with a player when they were getting up to Houston for the first time really stands out to you or one that sticks in your memory? Uh, that's a good one. Well, one that's memorable is when Carlos Correa got called up. We were in Toronto, and uh, it was a weekend series. Uh, June 7th was a Sunday, and it was the last day of the series, also my birthday. And it was a day game in Toronto, a Sunday afternoon, and the Astros blew it in the ninth inning. Luke Gregerson was a closer at the time, uh, and it wasn't all his fault. There was a really fluky play with a pop-up, and just all sorts of weird stuff happened. And the Astros wound up losing the game, and it was you know obviously a crushing defeat. You, you blow you blow a lead and lose uh, on a walk-off. And in Toronto, since it's international, you have to go through customs, and it takes longer to get on the plane than it does normally. Because uh, normally, you know, flying charter planes, you, you, the bus takes you right on the tarmac, you walk right onto the plane and off you go. But in Toronto, we actually have to go through the airport and you kind of have to, I mean, they, they set it up so that we're kind of in our own like lane, but you're more or less going through customs like everybody else is. Uh, and you have to go through the airport and the planes at an actual gate, like it's almost like it's a commercial flight, which is completely different than the normal procedure. So anyway, this all obviously takes longer than a normal departure would. So I remember getting on the plane and there were a few people already on, but most people were not on the plane yet. Most of the players were not on the plane yet. And, um, and I remember who first told me, but I found out that cause it was, it was, everybody was talking about on the plane that Carlos Correa was going to come up tomorrow because we, we the next day was June 8th. We were going to Chicago to start a series with the White Sox. 
And so there was all this buzz because this, you know, number one overall pick, he had been tearing up double uh, A AA and triple A that year. And it was just like, okay, we're starting to see some of the, you know, we had Springer had come up uh, the year before and uh, Lance McCullers had come up earlier that season. And so it's like, okay, we're starting to see some of these guys come up and, and get to the big leagues and be able to play together these prospects that we had been talking about for a few years. Uh, and there was all this buzz on the plane. And then I remember once everybody got on the plane and we take off, I remember AJ Hinch was going to the back of the plane and he was, you know, talking with guys. Everybody was in a festive mood. I remember at some point uh, there was a group that were doing shots. And uh, what's amazing about it is, like, they had just lost in terrible fashion. You know, just blown a game in the bottom of the ninth inning in Toronto. And it was like that had never happened because everybody was so excited because Carlos Correa was coming up and everybody knew what that meant. And, um, and, and you know, guys who had played with him in spring training had been looking forward to seeing him get to the big leagues. Uh, so, yeah, that was pretty unique. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, so that, that's definitely one with Carlos Correa when he was coming up. That, that, that definitely stands out. Yeah, that, that's a really great story. Shifting gears a little bit too, we're, we're obviously hopeful that, that baseball is going to return around the corner, but there's been a lot, of, a lot more important things going on in the world this time. And with this podcast being in Fayetteville, uh, with the recent uh, things in the news going down and, and the death of George Floyd that, that kind of rocked the country, he's, he's from uh, North Carolina in, in Rayford, just near Fayetteville. Uh, he, there was a, a public viewing of his body in Houston, and I saw on Twitter that you had shared that that you had felt compelled to go uh, to that public viewing. So, what compelled you to do that, and why did you feel like that was important uh, in in Houston earlier this week for you personally? Well, for me, the, you know, there's a few things. You know, you mentioned George Floyd, his connection to Houston, and also his connection to Fayetteville area, Rayford. Uh, that's about 20 minutes from where my grandfather's from. My grandfather grew up in Shannon, North Carolina, a uh, little small town. Like Rayford's the closest, like, quote, unquote, big city. Um, and if you're going to fly into anywhere, you're flying into Fayetteville or, or Charlotte or something. And um, so knowing that, uh, knowing his ties to Houston, and I had actually wanted to go earlier in the week, there was a march with George Floyd's family and Sylvester Turner, who was the mayor of Houston, they were going to lead this march to City Hall. And I had wanted to go, but I, for a variety of reasons, I couldn't go. And I just wanted to show my respects, pay my respects, show my appreciation, and just do something. You know, I think a lot of us have felt like, you know, we've just wanted to do something, whatever it is, whether it's march, whether it's donate money, whether it's have conversations with people, I think every, I think a lot of us have felt that way. And I certainly felt that way. And I mean, the reason I have is, you know, just knowing, you know, being African-American, understanding uh, that the, some of the history in this country and understanding that no matter how you look at it, no matter how you try and paint it, there is a difference overall, a systemic difference in how African-Americans are treated by law enforcement and society at large compared to how other groups are treated by law enforcement and society at large. And obviously what happened to George Floyd has just brought more attention to it. And you certainly hope that it's not one of those things that just goes away, uh, that there's actually some meaningful changes that are occurring. And it does seem like that is happening. It seems like this is a little different uh, than, than other instances uh, that, have, that have occurred over the years. And, you know, part of what hits home for me is I remember seeing, you know, pictures of George Floyd and kind of hearing his story. And of course, there were some who want to focus on the fact that he had been arrested before and had, you know, made some mistakes in the past, possibly. Uh, but, you know, this is a guy, he was, I think he was a, like a bouncer at a club or something like that. And, you know, was doing some various things. And, you know, when I, when I started learning more about him and his story and his family, I was just thinking to myself, like, George Floyd, like, that. I mean, he sounds like my uncle. He sounds like my cousin. Uh, I mean, he sounds like it could have been me if things had gone differently for me. And so that really hit home for me, knowing that he just reminded me so much of people that are in my family, people that I've grown up with. And again, like I mentioned, the connection to North Carolina and being 
from similar part of the country to where my grandfather's from. Uh, all of those things kind of ran through my mind when, you know, all this news started coming out and there were protests and, you know, I just wanted to do something. Uh, and I mean, I may do other things, but that was something that I felt I needed to do. It was in my backyard. I was able to go and it was worth it. It was definitely worth it. I'm glad I was there and I'm glad that I, I got a chance to, to pay my respects. And it was an open casket. So I actually got to see him. Uh, and it was, I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty somber. It was pretty moving. Um, and it's something that I'll never forget. Great. P- appreciate you sharing that. And uh, like we said, you know, baseball is a distraction. It, it's a trivial thing that's going on and, and there's a lot more important things happening, but not that it's going to replace it or distract us from anything else that's happening in the country right now and, and everything you were talking about with George Floyd and systematic problems with racism that we have to fix. But man, I just want to see a baseball game too. And like, how is how is that going to matter for us too, even small, when we do get baseball back for us as a country and, and bringing us, everybody together? I mean, I think the biggest thing is, I mean, you know, how important is baseball in the grand scheme of things? Obviously, there are so many things that are more important. And I feel like most of us understand that, certainly those of us in the game. Um, like, I always hate it when people say things like there'll be a tragedy in sports or something. And someone said, well, this really puts things into perspective. Well, I mean, yeah, we understand that tragedy and pandemics and things like that are way more significant than sports or baseball ever will be. Uh, but what baseball is and what sports are is they're entertainment, they're a diversion, uh, they're a way, like you said, to bring people together. It's, it's something that can be uh, talked about, that it can be universal uh, among you know, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, all sorts of different walks of life. Uh, and that's always the beauty of sports is that it has a power to unite unlike almost anything else um, in this country. And I mean, that was true. That's true now. That was true 50 years ago. I mean, that's, that's, that's been true for a very long time. So yeah, I mean, and obviously selfishly, I, you know, I like calling baseball games. I would like to, to call some again, but almost, I almost like forget what I do for a living right now. Um, so that would be nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's going to be challenging. I mean, there's a possibility, a very strong possibility that we could be broadcasting road games from a, a studio or from Minute Maid Park. Uh, that'll be different. That'll be a challenge if that happens, but that, it's our job to, to deal with these things. Same thing like we were talking about with potential rules changes. This is all part of it. This is all part of painting the picture for the audience and, and doing your best job to, to let them know what's going on. And that's something that I'm looking forward to. I know it's going to be you know, assuming that there are games played in 2020, it's going to be a much different season than any I've ever been a part of and probably m- much different than any season I'll ever be a part of, you know, from this point forward uh, after 2020. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge and I, I hope I hope it happens this year. That's great. I, I think that's as good of a way as we can to sum it up. So I appreciate uh, the time from our guest once again, uh, play-by-play voice on the radio for the Houston Astros, Robert Ford. Rob, this was fun. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks once again to both of our guests, J.P. France, pitcher for the Woodpeckers last season, and Rob Ford with the Houston Astros Radio Network. couple of quick reminders to catch you up on as it relates to the Fayetteville Club. Uh, Father's Day is coming up this Sunday, so if you're still looking uh, for a last-minute gift, we've got some great Woodpeckers merchandise gear, some Father's Day gear bundles. You can check those out on the Woodpeckers social media channels on Twitter, at WoodpeckersNC. That just personally is my uh, social media medium of choice, at WoodpeckersNC, to find out about that. Uh, Probably not good for your last-minute dad pack purchase, but we have expanded curbside pickup on Tuesday from 2 to 6, and now a new time slot, Thursdays 10 to 2. So if you're one of our fans listening in the Fayetteville area, you can order online at the Woodpecker's Bird's Nest Team Store. That's going to do it for episode number 5 of the pod. Next week, I'm finally getting caught up and starting to book guests in advance and already have some of the interviews, in fact, in the bank. Next week, the plan is to have a potential future woodpecker. It's going to be our first player guest who hasn't actually appeared in a Fayetteville uniform yet, but a local product uh, out of nearby Dunn, North Carolina, Matthew Barefoot, sixth-round pick of the Astros last year. We'll catch up with him, uh, and we also will have the baseball Brit 
uh, as our guest, uh, kind of Twitter famous personality, great lover of the game of baseball. Uh, he will be dialing in from London in the UK as our guest next week. Uh, he has traveled all around the country to a ton of minor league ballparks, and Segre Stadium was one of, if not his absolute favorite of the minor league parks that he visited as part of his travels last year. So we'll get a little international flair with the baseball Brit. Uh, excited for that one, our guest, for next week's episode. So that's it for episode number five of the Woodpeckers Baseball Podcast. Again, we'll remind you to like, share, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you can find it. Uh, thanks again. This is Matt Dean signing out for episode number five of the Woodpeckers Baseball Podcast.